Welcome to Out of the Comfort Zone. When you lead from a base of expertise, your confidence and credibility are derived from your knowledge. People follow you as a result. However, when you take a stretch assignment and span outside of your comfort zone, leading requires a different approach, one of influence, inspiration, compromise, and courage. We are here to talk about how to take that next step and keep going. Now, here is your host, Wanda Wallace. Welcome to Out of the Comfort Zone. So do you admire leaders who have courage and who seem to make really bold moves and they also seem to do it without a whole lot of stress, or at least so it appears on the surface? And do you wish you had more courage or do you wish your team had more courage for that matter? If so, we've got some really good news for you. Courage is a developable skill, just like any other skill. And the secret is understanding what are the component parts that lead to courage, not unlike everything else that we talk about in leadership. What is it that we need to be doing that makes up this thing called courage? My guest today is Jim Dietert. He's the John L. Colley Professor of Business Administration at the University of Virginia's Darden School of Business. And he's affiliate professor at UVA's Batten School of Leadership and Public Policy. His award-winning research and his teaching interest involve employee voice and other forms of workplace courage, experiential leadership development, and ethical decision-making and behavior. And the book we're talking about today is Choosing Courage. So Jim, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. It's great to be here with you and, and your listeners. I'm happy. This is exciting to talk about it because it's exciting to hear about the background and the research and what it is we do to improve our courage. But let's start at the very top. I want to know why. What motivated you to start thinking and writing about courage? So there really were two things that came together for me over quite an extended period of time. If we go back 20 years now, more than 20 years now, uh, I did my dissertation on why people speak up at work or stay silent. Um, I was fortunate to work with folks like Amy Edmondson, um, of course, of psychological safety fame. And, you know, not surprisingly, you know, the dominant pattern in the thousands of people I initially looked at was that if you felt it was safe to speak up at work, you did. Uh, and if you thought it was unsafe, you didn't. You stayed silent or you didn't take a, a sort of a risky but important action. But there was always this small segment of folks who said either I or someone else I know here at work, um, they do speak up. They do challenge even when it's risky. And so I knew, you know, 20 years ago that there was this subset of actions taken in all sort of the opportunities I was exploring that would have been, you know, considered courageous. And I had kind of filed that away, though, and not done a lot because over the next 10 or so years, I, I really did focus on writing about what factors lead to the conclusion it's safe or unsafe or, or futile uh, versus worthwhile, and then what are the downstream consequences of people speaking up or not. But I always had in the back of my head that we needed to return to this notion of these sort of courageous actions. And then what happened is simultaneously when I was teaching all sorts of leadership courses, all different kinds of audiences from MBA up through practicing uh, executives, at the end of a lot of sessions, I would say something to the effect of, look, we've we've built some specific tools for your leadership toolkit, but I don't think that's the most important thing. I think the most important thing for you is going to be whether you have uh, are willing to be courageous in using the tools you have in those critical moments or those defining moments. And I would just say a, literally five minutes on that at the end, but over and over, 
uh, people would write as feedback. That's what we need a module on. In fact, that's what we need whole courses on. That's what we need help with. And that really resonated with what I had been observing more generally in working with, with people in business, which is that so many of us get, you know, 10, 15, 20 years in, we're still pretty young, but there's a big part of us wondering like, is this it? Is this all there's going to be in terms of my own growth or development or, or what's happening around me is it, and and I always remember thinking of you know like Thoreau's statement about most people living lives of quiet desperation, right. and that actually is what finally led me to say I I just have to understand more about this I have to go back you know to the thousand couple thousand year old right and encourage on up and say like what what do we know about this and how can how can we help people get a basic sense of not just like philosophically what does it mean but but how can they do something about it? And that began like the the following 10-year journey, which culminated in choosing courage and a lot of the other work I do now. Great. I think um, certainly it resonates with me as I think about all the clients that I work with, all the people that I coach, um, that question of how do I get the courage to ask for that promotion, to say what I want, to fight that fight, to have the difficult feedback. I mean, whatever that is, and I hear it from leaders all the time. How do I get my team to take more courage, to make bolder moves? Because those are where the breakthroughs are going to come from and at a minimum. So okay. it resonates with me, which is why I'm so excited about it. But I've never gone back to do the research or their thinking, their history or any of that piece to understand what it really means to have courage. So let's start a bit at the top of this. When you say courage, what do you mean by it? Okay, so I think the the first thing to distinguish is between whether we're talking about courage as some form of like a property of the individual, um, you know, some stock, and we often use the word that way, right? We say like they've got courage, as if as if you know, if you did a an autopsy, you could find some stock of courage. Um, I mean, first of all, that's just flat out, obviously not true. Um, and, you know, maybe we'll talk more about sort of, I think, what we know about who does and doesn't behave courageously, more or less. But I actually think it's much more helpful to think about courageous acts. Uh, so forgetting about the notion, are you more or less courageous on average than me? Is it easier or harder for you than me? And actually just saying, hey, when you have the chance to give a subordinate difficult feedback, do you do it? Or do you sort of soft pedal around and sugarcoat it? Um, when I have the opportunity to push back on, you know, the dean's strategic uh, plan, do I do it or do I sit silently, even though I know others and I disagree? Yeah, I'm much, much more interested in thinking about courageous actions, those specific moments where we either do step up and step out or we don't. Um, I think that's where we can actually make some progress in saying, uh, hey, you know, Wanda, what for you? Jim, what for me are specific actions I'd like to take more of and take skillfully. And that to me is much more useful than hoping that, you know, past 25 or 30, we're going to change our personalities because we're not. Um, right. I, so, I often say if I could change personalities, I would be in a very different business with a lot of higher price tag attached to what it is I do. Yeah, that's right. I mean, it's just it's it's also just such a not actionable strategy. Right. So for any you mentioned leaders that say I wish people would do more X, Y, Z. Um, 
Well, the actionable strategy is not uh, eliminate 80% of your people and start over. Right. (laughs) First of all, you can't do that for all sorts of reasons, including the fact that you couldn't find the new 80% who would be magically courageous. So, um, yeah. So I'm interested in courageous actions. Now, what does that actually mean specifically? I mean, I, I would say, let's just keep it really simple. I think it's, it's, it's an action that has sort of two features to it. It's something that is deemed to be happening for sort of a worthy cause or purpose. So it has to have some noble aspect to the action. Um, and it has to have some perceived or real risk. Right. And really we don't, you know, we can complicate it more if we want, but I think the simple place to start is, are you doing something that's hard for a good reason, for a good purpose? That that's the net, that's the essence of a courageous action. Great. Something that's hard with a real risk associated for a worthy cause. Um, yeah. I'm going to come back for a minute when you talk about actions. I think I like this notion of focus on courageous acts because we see throughout the world individuals who are not necessarily courageous personalities or risk-taking personalities will in a moment at yeah. a particular circumstances do something incredibly courageous. So, you know, that's a little bit redeeming from my point. So do something that's hard, that has a risk for a worthy cause, for a good purpose. All right. Um, Is there really any difference between courage at work and courage outside of work? Is it all the same thing? So I think what differs is, let's say, you know, some elements of context. Uh, For example, in our personal lives, often... Um, there isn't hierarchy that we're dealing with. Um, in our personal lives, conversely, uh, we might be much more motivated to deal with a challenging situation than to avoid it, right? So if I'm having an issue with my spouse, uh, who I'm going to live with day in, day out, hopefully for the rest of our lives, I'm pretty motivated to work through a disagreement Um Whereas, you know, if I'm on a team at work, I might sort of be like, yeah, why why mess with all these social and psychological discomforts? I'll just wait it out. So I think the context, of course, makes different, let's say, our motivation to undertake the action, and it can make different the particular risks. And let's just also be clear about that. I think there's there's four rough kinds of risks. There are career or economic risks. Like if I speak up to somebody above me, challenge somebody above me, Right, I might actually get that held against me in a retaliatory way. It might affect my evaluation, my promotion, my pay. The worst case scenario, my job. Right. So there's these economic or career risks. There are social risks. Uh, these often come into play, for example, with peers. Uh, you can't you can't do a lot of professional harm to me, right? Economically, uh, you certainly though can ostracize me. You can sort of make me the odd person out, the person who's no longer invited to lunch or anything else. So there's social fears. Um, there are psychological fears. Like we want people to be bolder, innovative, take more chances, but we often ignore the fact that, you know, if I stick my neck out outside of my comfort zone, I might feel like a fool. I might be embarrassed in front of others. So there's psychological risk of of pushing ourselves. And then, you know, it's not just in firefighting and, and the police force and the military where there are physical risks. I, I actually have been surprised in studying um, courage how how many people in just various service industries have pretty frightening stories of, you know, um, somebody tagged me with a weapon, somebody threatened me, somebody. So those are the four kinds of risk. So again, if we go like, well, inside of work, outside of work, the the mix of risks 
often differs, right? In different spheres of right. our life. But what I can tell you, and that, you know, hopefully we'll talk about this in more detail. Like when you ask people to like build a, a list or a ladder of like specific courageous actions they could take, um, and then actually commit to working on them. What I have found now in thousands of people is uh, people will put a mix of work related action steps and personal related action steps. And I say, that's great. Because if you overcome how you react to your own fear or to somebody else's anger or you know your lack of a certain um, communication technique, if you if you master the skills, you started by saying this is skills, and it is. The skills are going to transfer domains. Right. Right. Okay. All right. So we have differences in motivation. We have differences in the co- the combination of risks that we're dealing with. Yeah. And the um, what the risk may feel higher in one place and lower in another place, and whole sorts of combinations. And those are going to separate the acts of courage but they'll separate work acts of courage as well as personal life acts of courage as well. Okay. Yeah. All right. Uh, I have to go back to something you said earlier that courage you don't believe is a personality trait. Why do you say it's not a personality issue? Well, I say it primarily because I don't think there's social science there to show that it is. Um, you know, we've been looking in various ways. We've been looking for a long time to try to understand sort of what the courageous actor looks like. And, you know, frankly, we haven't really succeeded. I mean, post, post-World post War II, for example, uh, there were folks deeply interested in trying to understand you know, what differentiated um, those Germans and Poles and others who sheltered Jews um, at you know, at significant risk day in, day out to themselves. Like who who was willing to do that um, amidst so much else? Who was willing to resist in other ways? And, you know, the truth is if you read those, I mean, they, they were very careful um, extended studies. But when you read them, it's, it's kind of disappointing because the essence of the conclusion is essentially uh, those who felt responsibility to take action took the action. Which is you know, almost a tautology, right? Those like who acts, those who feel compelled to act, which is not a very satisfying explanation of what differentiates us, right? Um, and then if you sort of go forward, you know, in the 60s, 50s, late 50s, 60s, 70s, you know, the famous Milgram experiments, right? The Were you willing to shock a learner in a lab? Um, Milgram also spent 15 years or more trying to figure out like who who just goes along with the shock and who conversely is courageous, who is willing to defy the experimenter and say, no, I'm not doing this. This is wrong. Milgram's appendix to his book, Obedience to Authority, is the same sort of depressing. I don't know. I looked really hard. I can't figure it out. Um, and, and you know, so and I've looked and and I I just think we don't we don't really know. Now, we can point to some individual differences Um that on the whole have some influence on, for example, are you more likely to speak up in a meeting? Extroverted people, all else equal, are more likely to speak up than introverted people in a meeting. Um, you know, we, we can talk about like conflict diverse people by personality, all else equal, are less likely to do it. The distinction I think is important to make is it's not just who behaves courageously in like work organizations or life, it's actually who behaves with competent courage 
right? So the extroverted person might be more likely to sort of, you know, stand up in a meeting and say, well, this is what we should do and here's why. Uh, but we don't have any evidence that the extroverted person is any less likely to offend the boss or offend colleagues or come off as arrogant or uninformed, or in fact, they might come off as more of those things. So, and, and then we might say, well, the extroverted person speaks up more in general, but does extroversion actually relate to, for example, you watch somebody being harmed and at cost to yourself, you'd have to stick up for that person. We don't have evidence that extroverted people do that. So I, I just think it would be nice, right? Our search throughout history, we've always wanted to understand like who of us is like, who of us is built to do it. Um, that's a very, very hard thing to predict. Okay. I like that one. I know various psychological historical things that have tried to measure courage, but I think what they were measuring beha was behavior. They were measuring actions. That's right. And if I look at all that I know about personality traits, yes, there might be some personality traits that are more inclined to lead you to be take a courageous action, but right. a whole host of risks that would prevent you from taking a courageous action, like yeah. career risk, et cetera, et cetera. So Yeah, and, and that's why like I think there's a there is an important difference to make between personality. We often conflate um the idea of personality differences and just in general, individual differences. And it is worth disentangling them because I'm saying I don't think there's great evidence related to personality differences in courageous action. On the other hand, there are individual differences. So for example, one individual difference is related to a choice we can make. Uh, whether I make you know 50,000 a year or 50 million a year, I can choose to spend 99.9% .9 of that income or I can choose to spend 69% of that income and have created a big enough social safety net that I'm not as afraid to speak up in difficult situations because I'm not as at risk should right. something bad happen. So there are individual differences that matter. Most of those, though, are not hereditary or innate. Those are choices we make. Okay. All right. I like this, where this is going. Um, and then let me ask one last philosophical question. Do you think we have less courage today than we had before? Do you think there's a difference? Yeah, that's a um it's a very hard question. I mean, I I tend to think no. Um I tend to think it may appear yes and I think the answer is no. I think it appears yes because we have social media, we have a million eyes on everybody and everything. It's much more obvious when people are not taking, you know, you look at something like the January 6th insurrection. Well, everybody was watching what every member of Congress was or wasn't saying and doing, et cetera. And in many, many other periods in history, even as recently as 30, 40 years ago, we didn't have that same ability, right? So I think our sense of gutlessness has probably gone up quite a bit. Uh, the reason I suspect fundamentally probably not much difference is that when you start to talk about like human fear and how we react to deep fears, now we're talking about sort of how we've evolved as a species to sort of face the environment around us. And, you know, human evolution is, you know, takes hundreds and hundreds of generations to produce something significant. So I... 
I don't think we have any basis for saying, geez, in the last 30 years, humans became different. I, I don't think that's true. Okay, fair enough. Uh, probably more occasions in which we could act with courage. And certainly yes. I agree with you, more people are scrutinizing what we did and didn't do and what might in the past have been seen as courageous as today gets scrutinized. Yeah, right. and, and if I can add one last thing, I also yeah. think um, as we have increasingly the last 40 or 50 years, we've moved to sort of an ever greater glorification of leaders, a romance of leadership uh, and a massively growing, let's say, uh, winner take all sort of glorification uh, of riches that accrue to leaders, the power that accrues to leader. I think it's natural also for us to be doing more looking around and saying, well, does their behavior actually merit right. uh, what what these supposed, you know, once you glorify somebody, uh, it's only natural that people's expectations would go up as well. All right. Fair enough. I take that. All right. So you may see that there's a bunch of myths that people hold about courage. One of those is that it's a personality trait. We just worked through that one and sort of pretty much agree. I think both of us, it just isn't documented in the science. And then the second one is only some of us can do it. Why do you say that that's a myth that we can't all be courageous at moments? Uh, it's actually quite related, right, to the personality issue. Um if you let go of the first myth, which is that this is some innate thing that only a few have, then you have to say, well, then what is it instead? And I think you've already pointed to what is it? It's a it's a set of skills. It's a set of abilities we can choose to work on and develop. So if I were to say to you, uh, can all of us or most of us, right, the vast majority of us, uh, win a medal in the Olympics, you, you would say, no, obviously not. Conversely, if I were to say, can most of us choose to do something physical aerobic and slowly work to become a bit more competent um, in our athletic ability? You would say yes, mm -hmm. right? And then if I said, well, how would that happen? You'd say you'd work at it. You'd read something about it. You'd watch some videos on it. You'd go out and you'd try it over and over. Maybe you'd get some coaching and some advice, right? You'd, you'd join a team and get a support network. In other words, you would do the things it took to be the best athlete you could. Not an Olympian, but you'd get better. Yeah. Uh, courage is the same thing. And so I, I think one thing that letting go of this innate personality kind of set of concepts does is it allows you to say, well, then what is it actually? It's a set of skills. And nobody is born with the skills. You work at it. You choose to you choose to learn something and to practice it repeatedly. Um and that's perhaps the most important myth of all to let go of is this notion that anybody becomes good at this without working at it. Yeah. So it's, I understand the skills and I have to make a choice to yeah. work at it and a choice to put myself in circumstances where it's going to be easier or harder. All right, fine. So what are the skills? So I think we can think, right, if we start at the highest level, I I, I think of, let's say, three buckets of skills and these are based on well like what gets in the way what are three areas that get in the way when people try to be courageous or are but do it poorly the first one is what we might call physiological skills so you know people who say i immediately sweat and flush and you know have other physiological reactions that make me unable to stay in the moment you know i want to run away i want to escape or 
I do it poorly because I'm having this terrible physiological set of reactions. So one is how do you learn to do something about that? Okay. The second is what we might just call like cognitive or inner dialogue skills. So most of us, probably all of us have had that experience of something's important to us. We decide to say something, present something, push something. And the immediate reaction we see is somebody's face looks a little bit angry or disinterested or the first thing out of their mouth is, I don't think so, or maybe not now. And the inner dialogue we start is catastrophizing. Oh, he hates everything. I'm doomed. Or black and white thinking, right? It's always this or it's never that or a set of other very unhelpful inner dialogue things. And so the second thing we have to learn to do is say, how can I change the way I think about this going in? And then how can I sort of catch and, you know, come up with a healthier, more helpful inner dialogue? Like the person out there might not be on your side. Why do you have to be your own enemy on top of it in your head, right? And then the third set of skills is behavioral skills. Uh, how do I frame what I want to say in the most compelling way? How, how do I, everything right from, from tone, pace, uh, communication style, um, knowing how to pitch, you know, to what the other person wants to hear, finds compelling, not yourself, um, using perspective, taking skills, using communication tools to handle people's strong emotions like anger. So physiology, inner dialogue, right? You're thinking and then behavioral skills, right? You, you do have to, you, you do have to know sort of how to compellingly communicate. And, and this is what's different, right? This latter bucket um, is different than in clinical psychology, right? We have exposure therapy or desensitization therapy. That's for example, like I'm, I'm terrified of snakes or bees or bats or whatever. Well, for bees and bats and snake fear, all you have to essentially do is say, how are we going to get your physiology under control so you can approach? And how are we going to you know, stop telling yourself you're dead just because the snake looked in your eyes, right? But you don't need any actual skills because all you want to actually do is just get closer to the snake. Interpersonal situations are different. They require control of those first two things. We also actually need some communication skills. Right. Um, and that's right. So that makes it even harder. Okay. All right. So let's start with a couple of these and then we're going to take a break and then I'll come back to the big bucket. So the physiological, suppose I can't tell you how many times I get asked this question. I flush. What am I supposed to do to not let that get in my way of saying what's on my mind or distracting me? Yeah. Uh, So the first thing I think is, let's separate out that um, there are two kinds of things you can do around physiology. There are things you can do in real time, and then there are things you can do over an extended period of time. It's become very trendy, for example, uh, I, I mean this in a positive way, to talk about things like mindfulness, meditation, other tools like that. Um, those are great, but I think the emerging science says what those do over an extended period of time is they will um, they will just sort of lower our physiological reaction to all sorts of stimuli. But in real time, right? If you if you're my boss and I'm talking to you, you suddenly say like that's a dumb idea, Jim. I can't say, hey, Wanda, could you give me 25 minutes? I got to go do my meditation. I go meditate, yeah, <laughs> right. So they don't help in real time. So there's things you can do to sort of have to lessen the physiological reactions over time. And then there's a second set of things, and we can talk about those too. But what about in the moment? How can you sort of calm yourself right. down in the moment? All right. So what do I do in the moment? And you're right. The meditation, the prayer, the physiology, when there's a ton of work out there, 
on the power of these over time because they just calm your entire system down on everything. But they don't necessarily help, maybe help in preparation for, but they can't handle when I get the wrong reaction in the moment. So how do I do that? I'm in the moment. I've said something. I get a bad reaction. Uh. Okay. So I'll give you one very quick one for each of the three buckets. So in the okay. physiologically, what do you do? You can use something as simple as uh, like a box breathing technique. So box just literally means, you know, think of a box where inhale and hold for three to four seconds, inhale for three to four seconds, hold for three to four seconds, let it out for three to four seconds, pause for three to four seconds. So thinking just of a box with inhale, hold, exhale, hold. Uh, you know, that's a technique developed and used in Navy SEALs and other contexts. So one thing you can actually just learn to do is how to take like, like you can do that two times in a matter of 15 seconds um, and start to calm yourself down. And there are other similar techniques around how you can, you know, change your body posture. There are things you can do in the moment to begin to suppress your sympathetic nervous system response or elevate your parasympathetic nervous system response, which right is the calming part. Right. So there's those. Second thing you can do is you can realize that you also often get in a negative um, mental cycle about it. So, you know what the actually the the observer doesn't actually care that your face is a little flushed. They just care whether what you're saying still makes any sense or not. Uh, mm -hmm. We though tend to be like, oh, I feel my face getting red again. Oh, I'm so embarrassed. They're gonna think I'm an idiot. Right. So part of it is also recognizing uh, you're a lot more concerned about your physiological reaction than anybody else is. Uh, so don't make it worse in real time. Uh, don't be your own enemy. Uh, and even things like recognizing in your head that um, pausing to do that box breathing is no big deal because often we think, oh, then I create silence. I can't do that. But there's there's actually really interesting research that says, um, we think in our head three or four times the pace of speaking. So what that what that means is that um, what's actually only like a 15 to 30 second pause, which isn't a big deal and nobody notices as weird, feels like this inordinate pause that's unacceptable. So learning to sort of self like, who cares that my face is red? Oh, that's common. I can keep going. So it's the inner dialogue. And then, of course, behaviorally, it's learning to do things like um, how do you change your posture so that you can still talk without shaking? How do you um, possibly pause or ask for a break? How do you right? So what do you actually what how might you choose to sort of verbalize what's going on for you? But again, there's a whole range of techniques to deal with that physiological response. I often say to people, one of the you can buy yourself time to box breathe to calm yourself down, to have a better inner dialogue by just saying, tell me more. Absolutely. Uh, my phrase, I always tell my students, uh, if you hear me say, if you hear me say to you, hmm, that's interesting, tell me more, or hmm, that's interesting, do others agree? That's actually code for, uh, the truth is, it's highly, highly likely. I actually heard exactly what you said. I know what you said. Um, and I actually am pretty sure what others are gonna say too. I'm that's actually my like practiced phrase for buying myself more time to calm mm -hmm. down. Hmm. That's interesting. Tell me more. Hmm. That's interesting. What do others think? Yeah. Yeah. That's 30 seconds easily. 
<laughs> and it's and that's amazing what you learn, I often believe, out of asking that as you've calmed down, then you start to realize, oh, wait, 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 that what they said and what they really meant is something it isn't as bad as I thought it was. At least that's I, my opinion. I also think um there's a nice sort of side benefit of that, uh, which is that often when you say like wow, I wasn't expecting that. Could you tell me more? Or wow, I'm not sure I heard that correctly. Could you say that again? Right? You use a nice, a skillful phrase like that. That sometimes also has the benefit of the other person realizing, ooh, I was a little harsh in the way I said that, or ooh, maybe I wasn't clear. Or So, so it not only buys you time, I, I find that often just asking for a restatement or for clarification changes what comes out of the other person's mouth the second time too right especially if it's on a one-to-one in a yeah. public situation it gets a little bit harder but even there it can happen as well okay yeah. you can't i can't take a break without you telling me how do you change your posture so as not to shake yeah um that's a that's a really important i mean some people will use um like like physical, like small physical tricks. So for example, if there are parts of your body that are unobservable, um, you might continuously like flex your ankles up and down. Uh, if your hands don't have to be visible, you can continuously like sort of, you know, you can, you can move your, I think sometimes it's about posture. Now posture's tricky in that um, movement is actually often not advisable in a challenging conversation because you know if you think about it if i'm oriented like right like this and now we're having a challenging conversation and i move in yeah that might calm me down a bit but that just creates a threat response in you right that feels aggressive to you and conversely if i lean away that might make me feel a little safer but now i've sort of signaled a form of like weakness or disengagement so my advice about that is Try to hold yourself in the best position to begin with so that you'll be able to keep breathing deeply, like have a diaphragmatic movement, et cetera. But you don't want to be making heavy shifts in the conversation because that ends up being a subtle cue to the other person about how you're doing, which isn't helpful. I find also that when even when you're just shifting your body around in various ways, you're signaling your nervousness. And so. that isn't helpful in the conversation because no, I mean, not what we always show. We all have right implicit kind of mental maps of signals that people are nervous or signals that people are afraid of us or attacking us. Fidgeting is a sign of nervousness. That's kind of the mental map we all share about that, right? Right, right. Okay, all right, perfect, Tim. What a, this is a great place to take a break. So if I can try to recap. Um, the last 10 years of your work in five minutes or two minutes, I'm going to say, A, courage is not a personality trait. There's no evidence to back that in any form. There are circumstances that will make e any of us more likely to take an act of courage. So we want to look at acts of courage, not personality. And those involve the level of risks. And you've outlined four kinds of risks, the career economic risk, the social risk, the psychological risk, and the physical risk. Mm -hmm. And to be more courageous is a set of skills that you choose to work on. Some of those skills are things we need to be doing in the moment to continue to have courage in a difficult conversation. And some are things that we do over time to strengthen our resolve, capability, long-term skills. And we want to be working on 
physiological responses. We want to be working on the inner dialogue issues, and we want to work on our behavioral skills, particularly in terms of how we communicate frame messages, influence, persuade, or other words I might add that you didn't say. How's that? Very good. Excellent. All right. When we come back from break, I'm going to pick up with a little bit more of these, of some additional skills and where you can begin with thinking about how to improve your own acts of courage. And then we're going to talk about how do you speak truth to power? We'll be right back. Follow Voice America at Facebook.com forward slash Voice America for juicy updates from your favorite radio shows and podcasts. Hi, I'm Wanda Wallace, host of Out of the Comfort Zone. We have some amazing guests with some incredibly good ideas about how to take your leadership to the next level. But I find people are looking for more practical ways of implementing those ideas. So we've created an individual subscription service specifically to focus on how to apply. You'll find more about that at www.outofthecomfortzone.com. We have two additional subscription services, one for the social group that want to exchange ideas and perspectives with a group and talk about career advancement. And we have a master's level for people who want to take a deeper dive all on outofthecomfortzone.com. We hope you'll join us. If you want more information on the articles, books, coaching, and seminars we offer, go to our website at www.leadership-forum.com. You're sure to find some helpful links, videos, and more to help you create a winning strategy for your organization. Leadership Forum, helping organizations get it and keep it. This is Wanda Wallace, host of Out of the Comfort Zone. Do you find yourself in a role where your team knows more than you know? Are you struggling to see how you now add value? For years, I've coached leaders who have moved beyond the comfort zone of their expertise and have developed a methodology to help them make the leap and go on to do more. All of those tips are now packed into my new book, You Can't Know It All. Visit our website at leadership-forum.com or tune in to Out of the Comfort Zone for more insight. Voice America is on LinkedIn. Connect with us today. You are listening to Out of the Comfort Zone. To reach Dr. Wanda Wallace or her guest, call into the program at 1-866-472-5790. Again, that's 1-866-472-5790. You may also send an email to wanda.wallace at leadership-forum.com. Now, back to Out of the Comfort Zone. Welcome back to the show. With me today is Jim Dietrich. He is at the University of Virginia's Darden School of Business, and he's also at the UVA University of Virginia's Batten School of Leadership and Public Policy. Great research over many, many years on um, employee voice and Workplace Courage, among other things, the book we're talking about today, Choosing Courage. If you haven't picked it up thus far, courage is not a personality trait. It is something all of us can choose to do more of. And we've talked about the three buckets of behavior that you, or three buckets of skills you need to develop. One is managing your own physiology, so you're not freaking out about sweating or shaking or blushing or whatever else it is that you do physiologically. 
Second is the inner dialogue. So you're not making it worse on yourself, catastrophizing, re overreacting to everything that's said. And the third are the behavioral skills, particularly around communication and persuasion that are going to let you get through the conversation, make your peace and have the most positive outcome to that one. We've talked about immediate things that you do in the moment. And I want to talk now for just a couple of minutes about some longer term practices. So we've already said on the physiological side, Jim, that meditation and mindfulness are great skills to practice because they reduce the physiological stress levels in general across all sorts of things. So they can get you in a calmer state going into a meeting, imagining having a conversation. What about on the inner dialogue? What's your go-to technique there? So I, I, I think there are maybe two ways to think about like inner dialogue or cognitive um, improvements over time. One is actually, we haven't talked about this yet, is sort of thinking about the notion of mindsets. Um, most of us, if we're honest, our mindset around stress itself is stress is bad and should be avoided. Stress is going to be a disaster. Uh, but there's some very, it, in more recent years, is really interesting, powerful research uh, on what's called stress as challenge mindset. And that research is showing that, like, you know, stress is stress, like the stimulus is what it is. But that if we literally say, like, I have a big presentation at work today, or I have a big meeting with such and such, that if we if we choose to frame that as, uh, oh, God, this is going to be this is a terrible meeting and I hate I'm not good in stress. We will a start more physiologically ramped up and it'll have all the downstream negativity, you know, we've been talking about. Conversely, if I choose to say like, um, this is a, this is a big, important moment for me. This is an exciting opportunity today to achieve X. This is a great opportunity to do what I wanted to do in front of others for a long time. In other words, if we just reframe the thing itself as a wonderful opportunity, um, to face a challenge, to try new things, to grow, that itself has a massive impact on how things go for us. And more and more, it looks like it doesn't affect just our willingness to approach and how we do, but it may even be affecting things like heart disease and other, like it, it has longer term physiological effects for us to view stress as a challenge rather than this, you know, dangerous or bad thing. So one thing I think is mindset, like how do you actually, how do you frame the fact that it's a stressful stimulus. Uh, then, you know, on the on the sort of stinking thinking itself, right, which is the realm of cognitive behavioral therapy, probably most listeners have heard of cognitive behavioral therapy, CBT. It's the most widely used therapeutic technique, I think, in the world. Um, you know, the essence of CBT is just learning to catch, like, and you can ask people around you, like, what, what are the... Um, what are the two or three or even one or two phrases you hear me say that are distorted thinking that I could learn to start catching myself? Um, you know, it might be like if you, if you might, for example, say to a friend or a partner, if you hear me say the word disaster in describing something, call me on that. If you hear me say, you know, things that are binary thinking, good, bad, black, white, um, you know, home run or strikeout. Can you point that out? So I think it's actually what one of the long-term things we can do is actually teach ourselves how to recognize uh, in real time, like, uh-oh, <laughs> doing that again, and then just sort of calm it down. Uh, yeah. And again, right, we don't have time to go into it, but like if you went to if you went to a therapist for a long period of time, 
a lot of what would happen is you would describe the problem you had with this person or that person or that situation, and they would help you sort of unpack the less helpful thoughts and try to replace it with a more helpful thought. I think I spend an enormous amount of time in my coaching practice helping people reframe their understanding of a situation. Partly that's mindset, but partly that is a CBT, seeing it in a slightly different way. And those techniques are around with and easy to find out more about how to do them. You know, Google will be your friend on that particular case. Totally. totally. All right. Now, there's so many skills in communication. I want to hone in on one that you talk about that everybody speaks about, which is about reading the room. You know, I need to be able to read the room. If I can read the room, et cetera, et cetera. You have a unique view on what it means to read the room and how you go about doing that. Yeah. So I think I think sort of a, a maybe two levels of, or types of reading the room. One would be like, I really don't know anybody. <laughs> so right. in that context, right, I really have to reading the room actually means what can I pick up from people's facial expressions, body language, um, the way people are sitting. Um, and there's some real, I, I personally think Carol Goman's work on the silent language of leaders is the best I've seen. Uh, and, and what Carol talks about is just, for example, how do you notice how people are sitting? And she talks about a lot of this in evolutionary terms. Like if I, if I have to get up to run, if I'm actually anxious, I will, I will, without even thinking about it, I'll tend to sit, you know, so that my legs are directly below me with both feet on the ground. Why? Because I could actually be on my feet running as quickly as possible. If somebody's got their legs way out in front of them comfortably, that's actually a sign. Legs are crossed. That's a sign that person's really relaxed because they can't get to their feet very quickly. Um, You know, we all know like, oh, if somebody's leaning in, they're, you know, they're more interested. If they're turned away, they're less interested. But there are a lot of other more subtle ones. Like um, you often see, um, you know, this hands be in men, not so much in women and men, you see these hands behind the head like this. Right now we say since, well, what does this mean? And people guess all sorts of things. Uh, and it, what it actually is, it's a dominance display. Uh, if you think about like in the animal kingdom, right? What is a, what is a bird or other, what do other animals do when they want to mate or threaten off a, a potential predator? Uh, they make themselves larger, right? This, so this is just like a bird, right? Like, spreading his plume. So uh, there are lots of ways you can actually get skilled without a whole lot of work at knowing like, yeah, I hear the person saying they're not mad, but their body's telling me they're mad. Or I hear them saying they're relaxed, their body's telling me they're not relaxed. So I think when you know little about people, that's a really important little set of tools to add to your toolkit. Uh, When you do know um, people well, then I think it's about taking the time to say before the specific situation, um, what's this person's pattern? So for example, I used to work with somebody every single time I presented any idea, the first thing that would happen is their brow would furrow and they'd say, we can't do that. And frankly, I spent, I wasted a lot of time. (laughs) I wasted a lot of time over multiple years getting all angry and hooted and going. And almost every single time we eventually did what I was suggesting we should do. And if I had just learned to be like, Okay, that person's initial response for whatever learned reasons is no. They almost always come around if you don't get too worked up about it and just keep presenting your data. So it's learning, like part of reading the room is saying, what do I know about this person's patterns? Do they start off hot and then cool down as long as you give them data? Um, Do they, you know, 
do they seem like they're not listening when in fact they're just sort of incredibly good processors without looking at you or whatever else like and then using that and and one thing all of us i can't say all of us but i think most of us are not very good at is realizing um that the frame has to be about the target right so let's say again um i'm coming to you one and i want i want some resources i want some investment i want you to make a change uh, obviously, I think it's the right thing to do. That's why I'm coming to you. But if I had the power to do it, I'm not coming to you. I would just do it. Like I need you to agree. So what's important is that I think about, hmm, what have I seen Wanda resonate with in the past? And let's say that my natural tendency is I am thrilled about opportunities because I love innovation, growth, and change. So I like opportunities. And I like to talk about how things are consistent with our values here. So I come in and pitch you, hey, we should do this because it's such a great opportunity and um, and it's so consistent with who we are. But it turns out that what you gravitate toward is um, we got to react to threats around here and uh, we got to worry about the bottom line. So if you're driven by reacting to threats to make money or to keep making money, and I'm pitching cultural opportunities. I'm not going to get anywhere with you. Right. right. And so part of reading the room, I think, is like reading is thinking about the person. What what do they resonate with? Because I need you to agree with it. I already know I find it compelling. Right. So and I've got to find out what it is that you believe won't work, why you won't make it work. There's a whole bunch yeah. of series about understanding your frame. All right, great. Yeah. I'll give one other reference on this one, Jim. I don't know if you agree with it or not, but Alex Pentland's research on honest signals is another great parallel to Carol's. Um, between those, I think you end up with an awful lot of advice about looking at the body language pieces. Okay. All right, let's shift. Great tools there and many, many, many more in the book, uh, Choosing Courage. You teach people to begin to be more courageous by doing a courage ladder. Walk us through what that looks like. Yeah, so the the essence of the courage ladder goes back to something I said earlier about sort of this notion of exposure desensitization, right? Um, if I if I if you if your goal is eventually to be able to stop like you know being absolutely terrified of every snake, then I don't. I don't start by saying you're going in the room and picking up the cobra today. Um, I would say what's a what's the smallest? Maybe first you just get in the doorway and look at the cage from 50 feet away for four seconds, right? And then very, very slowly. And the courage ladder is built on the same notion of sort of slow exposure um, or desensitization. It's a basically saying if you've got if you've got some big, scary, challenging things at the top, let's say top rungs of your ladder, that's not the place to start. Um, you know, I, I talk about other, you know, psychiatrists, psychologists talk about subjective units of distress, basically how, you know, how worked up or anxious do you get thinking about that action? And I will say like from one to 10, where one is, you know, I, I could do that. No, no problem at all. And 10 is like, it causes a panic attack immediately. Um, mm -hmm. think about different things you'd like to do in your life. You know, I've been avoiding that conversation. I've, I've wanted to advocate for this, but haven't. I'm bothered by the inappropriate behavior of this person. You know, think about some behaviors like that and and array them on a a courage ladder from lowest suds to highest. Mm -hmm. And then the key is start at the bottom. Uh, why is that important? Two reasons. Um, one, 
you're just not going to do the scariest one. You're going to do, you're going to come up with every reason you can to avoid the sud 10 item. Right. But you might do the two or three. So first of all, just more likely to do it. But second, um, if the idea is that we get better by practicing skills in a sort of productive context, then that sub two or three conversation is a useful context to say, hey, I'm going to really work on that new thinking technique I was I was going to try. I'm going to try to get in a box breathing when I get a little bit nervous about this, or I want to try this perspective taking communication tool. There's a good chance you can try that in a sub two or three conversation at the bottom of your ladder in a way that helps you build some efficacy, some skill. Uh, you, you know, you get up there in the 10 and it immediately starts going off the rails. You're not going to use and practice any of those skills. So it's sort of like saying, hey, if you wanted to improve your tennis game, you don't go out um, and play, uh, you know, Federer because you're not going to practice any of your skills while you lose 6-0, Right. So that's the idea of the courage ladder is array things on increasing levels of difficulty and then start from the bottom. It's an interesting one also to think about if there's a difficult conversation I want to have with somebody, I want to speak up to power and mm -hmm. how I might say, how could I approximate that? What are the things I could imagine doing first to get me ready for that? And those will sort of, I think that helps you build the ladder that gets you to the thing you might want to do ultimately. Yeah, Love that's right. Yeah, because remember, like if we're talking about these base, if, if you buy into the idea that we're talking about these base skills, the skills are transferable. Okay. The same thing I practiced with my wife for 20 years now serves me in some other difficult conversations, right? Right. Fantastic. Okay. You've got two minutes, literally, Jim. What's your advice on speaking truth to power? I guess, you know, I, I would just say um, to sort of step back from the specific moment, you know, because in the specific moment, the reason we often don't do it or we don't invest enough to do it well is that we're very, very focused on the risks. I could lose this. This could happen. I could feel terrible. What I think we we need to learn to zoom out and do and say, like, what do I want my life to stand for? What's truly important to me? What would I hope my legacy would be? What would I hope my children or somebody else says about me after the fact or the colleagues who I'm bringing up behind me? Um, you know, what do I not want to regret? We know that regret is largely about inactions, things people in the end, no, they should have done, but didn't. We don't tend to regret things that just didn't go that well. Um, so sort of zone, zooming out first and saying, why should I do this? Why is this crucial to me to do it? And then realizing that, you know, at the end of the day, that's just another person on the other side too. And that goes a lot back to the cognitive framing of so much of what we get wrong is we think it's about us. Oh, he didn't like, he got grumpy. She got this... And we don't tell ourselves the story of like, I wonder what's wrong for that person today. I wonder what sadness or hurt or anger or pressure they're under today. Or I want, and the truth is that other person, even if they have more power, they're just a person too. And they're just trying to make it through life the way you are. Fantastic. Jim, I love it. They're just another person, another mental reframing. Jim, if people want to get in touch with you, what's the best way to reach you? So easiest way to find me, because you can then contact me through there, would just be to go to my website, uh, jimdietert.com, uh, or to find me on LinkedIn, Jim Dietert okay. at LinkedIn. All right, fantastic. Jim, what a fabulous conversation. Thanks for joining us. I think my highlight out of this one is that we want to focus on acts of courage.
And yes. how do we do more of them? Start with the small ones, the simple ones, build our skills up. And I love the three buckets and the th ways of thinking about the skills that you need to increase the acts of courage. If you've enjoyed our show today, please like us on your favorite podcast provider. And please join us next week for another episode in getting out of your comfort zone. Thank you for joining us today. Tune in for another edition next week with Dr. Wanda Wallace on the Voice America Business Channel. Reach outside your comfort zone this week.